Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. Today on Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Caggiano has a special guest, Father Frank Donio, the director of the Catholic Apostolate Center in Washington, D.C. So keep your radio right here on 1350 AM for today's show, and keep it dialed in throughout the week. Or keep us on your phone using the Veritas Catholic Network app. On the app, you'll be able to listen to uplifting conversation and edifying programs whenever and wherever you want. You can get the app on the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at VeritasCatholic.com. We are Catholic Radio for Connecticut and New York. When you're tired of listening to noise, put on Veritas and be fed. All right. Welcome to Let Me Be Frank, everybody. It is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's always good to see you. And today we have a great guest. Yes, I am very so excited. So why don't you do the introductions? Yes, please. Definitely. We have Father Frank Donio with us today. Father Frank is a priest with the Palatine Order of Fathers and Brothers, and he's the director of the Catholic Apostolate Center at Washington, D.C. Father Frank is a well-known expert on evangelization, co-responsibility and collaboration in ministry and apostolate, pastoral planning, church leadership and management, and Catholic and Palatine spirituality. He has spoken at colleges, schools of theology, dioceses, and national and international conferences, as well as on the radio and television. And Father Frank is the recipient of the Gaudium et Spes Award from the National Association of Lay Ministry for his outstanding work promoting understanding of the church in the world according to the vision of Vatican II. Welcome to the show, Father Frank. It's wonderful to be here, Steve, and thank you, Bishop Caggiano, for the opportunity to be with you, and it's always a pleasure to be together with you. Well, you know, Father Frank, I'm delighted that you're here, and we've known each other for a long time, and now you've made the podcast, Let Us Be Franks, in the plural, which is tremendous. <laughs> We've hit a new milestone. <laughs> we, we, we have. We have, Bishop Frank. It's, uh, it's wonderful. I, I'm very, oh. very, very excited over this. I've been telling well, people, this is ex- so exciting. <laughs> well, listen, I, we, we know each other fairly well, but my, our listeners do not know you. So why don't you share a little bit about your, your journey of faith? and your journey into religious life, and tell our listeners a bit about the religious congregation that you are a part of. I grew up in Hamilton, New Jersey, which is in southern New Jersey, mm-hmm. and it's a farming community. In fact, it's the blueberry capital of the world, and as it calls itself. But it's also a community that Uh, first had a a group of New Englanders come down, including people from Connecticut, Hmm. and settle to farm. And it's in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, which is a huge pine forest, which most people don't think about with New Jersey, but it is there. And then Italians came from uh, Sicily, southern Italy, came to farm. And now in recent years, uh, there have been many different people of different uh, of the Hispanic community, Latino community that's that have come and have and are also part of of this this community that's there. So it was a wonderful place to grow up, very Catholic place to grow up, uh, even though we had all different denominations there, and also uh, a, a small synagogue was there in the community as well. But it was a a great place to grow up. My family has lived there on all sides for over a hundred years. 
And uh, it has been, uh, it was, when you're in, and then you become interrelated, you know, families like that, you're interrelated. My community, my religious community, the Palatine Fathers and Brothers, we arrived there in 1901 to serve the needs primarily of the Italian immigrants, the Italian Catholics who were there, and to help keep them connected to the faith because there were there were activities of various groups trying to shift them away from the faith. You also had some who were more secular and uh, because of just the the reality of the Italian Revolution and, and so forth, and they came to the state. So we were, we were sent, we were a missionary community uh, founded in 1835 by St. Vincent Pallotti, who was a Roman diocesan priest, born in Rome, totally, his, his ministry totally in Rome, and uh, then uh, died in Rome. And as you can even go and see his body, it's, it's there, it's incorrupt. And, and so his whole understanding was everybody's called to be an apostle. And so we were, we were sent as international missionaries uh, in the 19th century, and we have this other piece of us that's about helping to revive the faith of Catholics uh, mm-hmm. and to do universal charity. And so my community uh, was there from 1901 until 2004. And so my grandparents, their, their, uh, their weddings were presided at by Palatines, my parents, uh, faith education, all sorts of things. And then another group that was there too were the religious teachers Filippini. And uh, they educated oh, sure. a number of my, my um, uh, family members I didn't go to Catholic school, but they were also involved in the religious education. And so I, I got to know the Filipini sisters uh, who are near and dear to my heart as well. And so the example of the Palatines, the example of, of the religious teachers Filipini, uh, who I know are also there in Connecticut, and, uh, and also just the, the atmosphere. We, had, uh, we have one of the longest standing processions through the streets for Our Lady of Mount Carmel. It's 145 years old. It's the the longest continuous one of these in the in the country. Um, wow. But it's a very it, it's a very family faith uh, oriented uh, community, and it was a wonderful place to grow up. And so, wow. in my high school years, I said, "Well, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go?" Um, I, I did some discern, and my I, my confirmation name, by the way, is Vincent for Vincent Pilati. So I, I kind of had a sense, this was when I was 12 <laughs> in sixth grade, but the, I just felt a connection with him, with the community. Uh, there were always at least three to four priests and brothers who were, who were in the local community there. And uh, I was already scheduled to go to Catholic University of America, the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. I was already accepted and so forth, but then the vocation director came along and said, you know, we'd like to offer you an application. And I kind of, I took that as my my signal, my sign, if you will. And uh, here I am, what, it's now 36 years, uh, 30, almost 37 years later. Uh, so wow. it's it's been wonderful. Cool. Been a wonderful wow. journey. You know, your description of growing up, um, it just, it, 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 it's heartwarming. It brings back memories of how I grew up. And I'm sure our neighborhood experiences were different, but but there's something about the power of a neighborhood and a community that's formative, right? It's you learn things. Sometimes the most powerful things in life you learn through example and almost through osmosis. You don't read it in a book, right? And 
one of the great thing, one of the great challenges of our contemporary world, Father Frank, is a lot of our listeners who may be much younger will not have the same experience, like say you and I had, and so many others of our age had, growing up in. But I'm going to say a neighborhood community environment. And it's very tr true. Yes. Would you agree? I would agree. I, I think it, it, and I do a lot of work with young people today. I've, for the last 24 years, I, I've done part-time campus ministry, done a lot of work with young adults, as you have, Bishop. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is a, a different environment. But it was even a different environment for, uh, you know, I found out later uh, when I was in college and when I was in, because um, I did end up going to Catholic University even as a Palatine. Uh, and was there with the lay students, and then in, even in theology and, and with other religious and so forth. And I started to realize, I realized, oh, this wasn't their upbringing. It was kind of unique mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. different. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I saw that difference, and I said, the Catholic culture, which is what I was steeped in, um, was just not part and parcel of of their lives and and then also saw my own peers who at times even though they were raised in that culture wander away from it for various right. reasons right you know i i've said this before in other contexts one of the great moments of conversion in my life was when i was in high school and i finally came to the revelation that i need not be ashamed of my upbringing that I needed to be proud of my upbringing, precisely because um, it was not um, what would be typically portrayed as the American experience, right? Um, I look back, I, I consider myself blessed to have had the experience I had. And so these younger people that you describe, they're having a different experience. So what we need to do is figure out a way, and I think you've done tremendous work in this regard, and I'm gonna ask you to speak about this. So they have a different experience, okay. And it has its own strengths, all right? There are weaknesses, but it has its own strengths that perhaps when I grew up, I did not have. So we go into those environments as missionary disciples, and we try to bring them an encounter with the Lord. So in your religious life and in all your professional work and in the work that we've done together, it is all about apostleship and missionary discipleship, right? So if I were a listener and never heard the term missionary disciples, how would you help me to understand what it meant? It's a follower of Jesus who is sent and that every one mm -hmm. of us is sent, mm -hmm. sent by him to continue his mission, not ours, his mission, mm -hmm. in and through the church until he comes again. That, that's so how everybody's a missionary disciple. Everybody. Right? Everybody. Okay. It's back to Pilate, who I mentioned earlier, who believed in the 1830s in Rome, which, you know, Rome in the 1830s was not exactly a place where there was a, a lot of lay involvement in that, in that way, maybe in confraternities, things like that. But he believed that everybody was called to be an apostle and created a group of lay people, religious and clergy, to do mm -hmm. help the missionaries, revive the faith of Catholics, and do universal charity. Mm-hmm. What he said then is what was said in the Second Vatican Council, in Lumen Gentium, the decree on the Apostle of the Laity, and every pope since has, mm -hmm. has mm -hmm. called us to this. And now we use the term missionary discipleship, which, which has, you know, rose out of the Latin American experience, but has now become part of the, 
the universal magisterium. So let's say I am 22 years old, um, or let's say 21 years old. I'm a senior uh, at uh, some secular university, and I am at best perhaps baptized a Catholic, but not practicing my faith. Um, how, how do you, this is a hard question, so forgive me for asking, but how, how do you help me to become a missionary disciple? How, how do I go from neutral to fourth gear? Tell me, so how I did spent, you do that? How did we do that? I, I spent uh, in, the, in the late 90s, uh, when I was director of St. Jude Shrine in Baltimore, I, I started to do campus ministry. And that was at um, UMBC, University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore County. And then later, about seven years assisting at the Catholic Student Center at the University of Maryland. So mm -hmm. I've been in these, these situations where there were the... And it, first and foremost, I think, is to find that community. Uh, I, I think that's the, the other piece of it. Sometimes people just kind of wait. Some people have found community online to a certain extent, but I think that is, is helpful. What I would also say to, uh, to someone is to be able to to walk with other people, to buy their example. You know, people will eventually ask, why, you know, why do you have a, a greater understanding of someone? Why do you take that extra time? Why are you uh, more caring? Why are, are you going, you know, why do you go to church? And to be able to answer those questions mm -hmm. of people, because they will notice. Mm -hmm. Or is it divided? Too often, it's a, uh, I see a divided reality, or I see a heavy-handed one, which also can be off-putting to people. And, and sometimes it's because people are maybe a little new. They might be the most Catholic person in their family. That mm -hmm. I see often among young mm -hmm. adults, is that they, they are the most practicing Catholic in their family and, so, and most active in the church. So when you say, um, like, heavy-handed... Give that. Give some color to that. What are some of the approaches that you do not think are effective? I think if if you just if a person is one, if they present themselves as uncharitable. Oh. Two, if they utilize the teachings of the church as a hammer, rather okay. than as a way in which we enter into the truth and true freedom by the witness of our lives. How are we mm -hmm. living those? Mm -hmm. How do we witness those? You know, in a, in a parish context, for example, you know, there's, there's the old example of uh, we're, you know, we could be very pious in church and then we get on the parking lot and we become, you know, it's, it's, we're going to, Go after one another to try and get well, off no, first. This, this is this is G rated. This podcast we can't go into that language, Father Father Frank. Yes, but okay. we got the idea. <laughs> so I think then, that the I I think it's it's more a matter of that we're we present ourselves in a consistent way, in a way that witnesses. The love of Christ, which is, of course, as St. Thomas teaches, willing the good of the other. Mm -hmm. But if we're willing the good of the other, then we, we need to be showing our love of God and love of neighbor. Some people get fixated on a very 
particular view of truth. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I understand why. Mm-hmm. But we can't become, as we, we say, uh, almost catechetical fundamentalists, where we mm-hmm. take and use the catechism as biblical fundamentalists would use the scriptures. Mm-hmm. The witness of our lives, as St. Paul VI said, is, is, a very, is more effective, but then we can teach as mm-hmm. well just as Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. It's not that he didn't teach, but he walked. Mm -hmm. He was there. He was present. Mm -hmm. And it's not Mm -hmm. a one and done. And it's not going to be probably large crowds. It's going to be more individual. But imagine if everybody who is a practicing Catholic, who is engaged in their faith, who does have that love that they want, imagine if everybody did that. Could you imagine what leaven that would be for change? You know, it's, as you're speaking, I think to myself, um, again, in the experiences I've had in my life, the most formative ones are the ones that involved individuals who I grew very much to respect or admire, and in some cases, love, like my parents because the integrity of their lives was the compelling reason to listen to what they said to me, right? And if I may add to what you just said, I think a trap that many people fall into, including many clerics, is that they believe that if they just simply preach the truth in an unvarnished way, that that is sufficient to force people to make a choice. You either believe it, or you walk away. But in fact, I understand the obligation is to teach and preach the truth effectively, which is a totally different mandate. Just as you say, you can't teach it effectively if you don't live what you preach, first of all. And there has to be integrity of life. And if a person intuits that you care for them, they are more apt to accept correction than if it's simply because you are an authority figure. Does that make sense, Father? Would it you agree a, with that? A, yeah, I do agree with it. And I, I think what, what happens is, is that we, when we are not authentically living, and this is especially true, as you well know, Bishop, with young people, mm-hmm. they can sniff out hypocrisy or lack of authenticity very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so if there if there's not if there's not an authentic living and witnessing of the faith that goes along with what's being said that's consistent mm-hmm. then they're not going to accept it. They're going to see it as hypocritical in some way mm-hmm. shape or form. Mm-hmm. And And if I may If I may, just forgive me for interrupting, but when we talk about the authenticity gap, I think we've spoken about it before, right? Given the the terrible example that some clerics have given and the wounds that have been created by their sinful behavior is itself a reason for some people to walk away because they don't see the authenticity. 
But the authenticity gap, wouldn't you say it's fair to say that it really applies to everyone? It's not just the clerics. It's everyone is called to, uh, to eliminate that gap in their lives. Yes, because we can go to, for example, on a college campus or even when you have a, a, a group that will come together or anybody, parishioners, so forth. So, so everybody's in the church. Those are there if they're there for mass. And they come out of mass and then start to gossip. And mm-hmm. let's say it's in a city setting or it's in a campus setting. And there are people going by. We can think that they're not hearing what's being said. As this one is, you know, is taken down and that one and the other one and what have you. That's a counter witness. They're going to say, well, if these are the people that go to church, why would I go there? Mm-hmm. Now, in mm-hmm. a suburban setting, okay, maybe we have more of a... But that, that doesn't necessarily bolster the faith. Who, maybe that, that, there's somebody in, that, in the parish church that hasn't been in that church, been to church in years, but for some reason they decided to go, and that was the first Sunday that they went. And now they're leaving. What do they hear? What do they mm-hmm. see? What do they mm-hmm. experience? Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't connect, then mm-hmm. what what happens? Will they come back? Yes. It's the real question. That's the real question. It's interesting. We want to invite people back to active faith, to come back to church. But if church is not, if the experience of coming to church is not one of, I'm using my words, it's not beautiful, it's not engaging, it's not invitational, it's not restful, it's not, it, it's not effective. You know, it, it, it doesn't touch you just in the mind, but it also touches your heart. How long are people gonna stay in the pews? Yes. Right? So, so in my what? mind, missionary disciples, because we're talking about this in the diocese, and I, we have a program, which we could talk about a bit, uh, that's seeking to prepare people for invitational ministry. But the truth is, invitational ministry is not, doesn't always have to begin by going and knocking on doors. You have to strengthen the community that you have to begin with, right? Uh, I agree that's, very much with that. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry to interrupt. It, no, no, please. It, it's two Italians talking, and so this happens. Uh, we we talk at the same time, but but I I'm, I I I so much agree with you, and I'm glad that that you're doing that as a diocesan wide initiative because it's this reality of of what is it that people are experiencing? How are we making this invitation? And then what are they experiencing? Is is mm-hmm. so critically important for uh, and, and it's not just simply about. How do I feel? There is always there is an a- affective dimension to uh, to Catholicism. You know, I was mm-hmm. talking about the processions and so forth. We we had different ways of doing it over the centuries, but there there is this this aspect as well as then the teachings, as well as then the rational dimension, and mm-hmm. and how do we assist our brothers and sisters in experiencing that that truth, that goodness, that beauty. Particularly, uh, absolutely, it's, it, it so evangelizes. It it's not even. Mm. I, I don't. It, it leaves me wordless because it 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 can be just such an evangelizing or a de-evangelizing moment. 
very right. much a de-evangelizing. Right. Before we go on break, allow me just to share this too. I've had in my, in my life some very dear friends, um, some of whom were not Christian. And among my Jewish friends, um, the fact that Judaism is essentially practiced as a religion at home, right, uh, raises for me the challenge in our own faith that that environment that you just described, the, the affective, the transcendent, the beautiful, the prayerful, the spiritual, also we need to rediscover how to give our families, parents, young parents, the opportunity, the tools, the comfortability to establish homes that do that. Because that is where faith is nurtured, that is where they become witnesses to the faith, that's where vocations are born, that is where you plant the tree. Pop used to say, if you don't plant the tree right, at a certain point it gets big enough, you're never gonna straighten it. You can't straighten it. So we could talk about that after the break, because I think we need to go on the break. Yes. So. You're listening to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Bishop Caggiano has been speaking with his guest, Father Frank Donio, the director of the Catholic Apostolate Center. We will be right back. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So. Let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. We're picking up on a conversation between Bishop Caggiano and Father Frank Donio, the director of the Catholic Apostolate Center. Excellency? Yeah, uh, Father Frank, I mentioned that there is this ministry that we are beginning of invitational ministry. And... Um, there's about 250 people in training now, and the first part of it is just personal enrichment, their own prayer life, and and to be able to spend time with the Lord. I call it going into the upper room, which was what my exhortation spoke about. And then eventually give them some tools and accompany them in missionary life. All right. Realistically speaking, uh, there are whole groups of individuals out there that we have to create the bridge to encounter. You know, like, uh, like Pope Benedict speaks of the courtyard of the Gentiles, right? To create these courtyards where we can meet them. And one group that is very dear to my heart, for which we have had, at least I have been very frustrated in trying to figure out how to reach out to and serve better, are our college-age young people on the campuses of the universities and colleges in the diocese that are not Catholic. Because as you know, we have Fairfield University and Sacred Heart University. And they have very robust campus ministry programs. But uh, UConn is huge. The University of Connecticut is huge. Up in Danbury, in Stanford, we have uh, the University of Bridgeport. We have Norwalk Community College, which is a ton of community college. So we're talking, uh, I mean, conservatively, 25,000, 30,000 young people, right, in these institutions alone. So you think to yourself... We, th this is prime territory. Okay, so this is my question. You've been at this for almost a quarter century. You have your hands on the pulse of campus ministry and college life. Um, 
what do you see in the landscape, first of all? Where do you see as the challenges and opportunities there? What has worked in your experience of serving college-age young people? What advice can you give me? And I have a young adult counsel that I threw this into their lap and said, what, how, how, if you were me, how would you address this question and create a bridge to these young people? Uh, Father Frank, I'm very curious to pick your brain on this subject. Take it any way you wish. One, I think we need to start also with the parishes and the programs and, and ways in which we go about youth ministry because that's the preparation ground where people are can be then formed as missionary disciples so that then when they go to college, they can engage in that. And at mm -hmm. the collegiate level, who's there already? Not, not a closed, cliquish group, and that's one of the problems that sometimes occurs in both youth ministry, in campus ministry, and even in some some ministry with young adults, is that it becomes a very closed group. People who are formed as missionary disciples who recognize that they are, that they are called to go forth and to accompany others and to draw them, draw them into greater life, uh, the greater life of faith, and not to leave that just simply to those who might also be Doing that type of work, there are a variety of, of apostolates that exist that do that. And sometimes that's the same danger we have in, in, in ministry, where we'll leave it to a certain segment to do that kind of work. No, it's everyone. But we need to give people tools to be able to do that. We can't just say to them, okay, you go. Great. But, <laughs> but we, we, we wring our hands about who is not there. Who's there? How do we equip mm -hmm. them? How do we assist mm -hmm. them? How are they formed? In what ways, you know, when we talk about the upper room, uh, hello, you're not, the Holy Spirit is, is the one. And plus there's also a discernment within the, within the community there. There was an ongoing discernment. Sometimes I think people forget that after Pentecost, that they, as if they just went out, everybody went out and never returned to that room. That's wow. not the community of faith. We keep coming back, particularly to the to, to the mass, to the Eucharist, mm -hmm. but but also to to be to be formed so that we can go for it. Now that's a that's a very you know, kind of thirty thousand foot view. From my practical experience, it's mm -hmm. a lot of want, and this is this is not defaulting to programs. And, and the studies bear it out. In the USCCB study that was, rec that was done in the last few years uh, in the, in the um, higher education office, in the Secretary for Catholic Education, that it's not to default to programs. We need to accompany others. And by accompany, you know, sometimes people shy away from that where it's not meandering around. The accompaniment, as Pope Francis is very clear about, is is all is is to Christ. But there are times where we walk in, just as in the road to Emmaus, in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And so, what are the ways in which we can then walk with people? And sometimes people see this as an overused term, like where they are. 
But that is where you need to be in campus. Where are people? One of the places where, where I would uh, spend a lot of time, of course, pre-pandemic, was uh, on the campus of even Catholic University was in the Starbucks. I didn't, you know, it was to, it was to, to the point where it was a running joke that that was my office. But it was easy. I could work there and do what I needed to do. You know, when I in between, when I was teach when I and I'm still I still do teaching, and campus ministry has always been a passion of mine and a part. I'm unfortunately part time uh, because I've always had other ministries, but I've accompanied a lot of young people over the years, and then helped them to learn how to do that. And I and I think when, if we teach people how to do that. Now, again, it's not that one is trying to create a cult of personality. That's also a danger in this kind of work, where it becomes focused on, that, on the individual. It always has to be focused on Christ. And if we keep mm. that Christocentric way and, the, and, the, and drawing people into the life of the community of faith, the church, then, again... If this person's doing doing uh, doing this with a few people, and that person's doing it, and another person doing it, we see what happens from there, mm-hmm. and and it mm-hmm. grows. Is it not so much different than the early church? But right. we get very caught up in numbers, huge crowds, big programs, and so forth. Programs should be part of. Uh, an, on, an ongoing accompaniment, even service, whatever type of service is done, because that's also a way in for a number of young people. Mm-hmm. And so particularly college students, well, then what happens after that? How is that accompaniment continued so that people are, are taking that experience and particularly an encounter with the poor and and entering into a deeper life in Christ in and through his church. Father Frank, you have been doing this for almost 25 years, right? Mm-hmm. Campus ministry. So Part-time, what yes. has changed What has changed in 25 years? As you look back on the 25 years, what is different now that was perhaps not the case, for better or for worse, than when you started 25 years ago? Anything strike you? It was prime... Primarily, what I've what I've seen is that there there were a few more people who came out of a of of Catholic culture. Although now, what I'm seeing too are the the children of people who are who are my age who got very engaged in their faith at the high school or collegiate level and made a very conscious decision to make that part of their families' lives. And I'm dealing with the children of those now, who are Gen Z, which has been very interesting. Are very, they, very are they more conservative? Are they more conservative? I, I try not to use those, those labels. I think what I have found is, is that they are more, um, they have a bit more comprehensive uh, view of the faith in terms of formation. Mm-hmm. In some instances, they're also the children of people who were engaged in volunteer service, for example, the mm-hmm. various Catholic service organizations, you know, pe- mm-hmm. because that became very popular in the 80s, 90s, and now up to today to do a year or more. Mm-hmm. And so now these are the children, the t- people I'm seeing now, some of them are the children of those 
uh, of those couples that came out because often that's how they met, and they they've made faith is 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 part of it. But it, it is maybe a, a a way a formation that also is very much engaged in in uh, in service. So it comes in a variety of ways I have found, and I I mm-hmm. think that the important thing is to assist people in in the encounter with Christ mm-hmm. and and to help them to to recognize this that that we're not dealing you know as Pope Benedict has talked about Pope Francis has reiterated you know it's not uh, that this famous quote from Deus Caritas Est about we're not dealing with you know a historic event or something it's an encounter with a person Jesus Christ but again, mm-hmm. always in and through his church. I remember when we were working mm-hmm. on the document, Living as Missionary Disciples, and the bishops were very clear, the bishops on the committee, about making sure that community and communion were very much a part of that document. Because mm-hmm. it can mm-hmm. easily be me and Jesus, or my work, my ministry, my apostolate. No. You're, you're, it's always in and through the church in some way, shape, or form. And that's what makes it Catholic. In yes. The that they, they, right, they were members of the mystical body of Christ, right? But let me ask you this. The reason I mentioned the word conservative is because my experience here in the diocese is that there are growing numbers of young adults who are attracted to the liturgical celebrations, particularly the celebration of Mass, in more traditional forms, whether that mm-hmm. is in the extraordinary form or in the Novus Ordo, which is our, our, mm-hmm. our typical way of celebrating Mass, but um, with many elements of uh, Gregorian chant or uh, in some ways bridging what the liturgy was before the Reform, uh, but acknowledging that there is a change, and they want to recapture, it's almost like recapture our history, maybe recapture their own identity in that history, even though they were not even born. I find it a fascinating phenomenon. Do you see that in the, in the, in, in the college where you are, on the campus where you are? Yes, I, I see it. I see it all the time. I've seen it for years, in fact, going, going back over the last 25 years. I've just seen it grow. Um, the, mm-hmm. the desire, and then of course, in working with uh, with seminarians uh, in doing spiritual direction, I've I've certainly seen, and and also discernment. I've worked with a lot of discerners, several of whom are are, are priests and or are seminarians or or in formation in religious communities right now, uh, partially because of chaplaincy with the Knights of Columbus College Councils, and what I have found is that. There is a desire for reverence, uh, but there's also, you know, there's also this whole piece about, you know, for some, praise and worship music connected with Eucharistic adoration, which sometimes for some, some people viewing it, they're they're trying to view it through a lens of uh, almost an ideological lens, and that's not the the lens that I view it. I view it as a desire. Uh, for some, it's it, it's about identity. I've taken on Catholic identity. Other people in my family have not. And so I have to have all the markers of Catholic identity in whatever way that that might manifest itself. 
in and liturgically is one of those ways. But then there are others that it, it's it's a much more comprehensive way in which they're viewing things, um, because they they didn't ex they are trying to experience uh, a an experience of the transcendent. They're they're hoping for that. They're looking for that. That is what their desire is. And so in the more, what is seen as more reverential liturgical forms or ways, whether it's ordinary form or extraordinary form, there is this, des this uh, desire to commune with God. And it's not just simply, they're very community oriented. They want to make, have those relationships. But in the worship experience, there's also there's the desire to commune with God. And that comes in different forms. I think when in the 1970s, 80s, and, and early 90s, that came in the form of, of more communally, communal type liturgies that came with a variety of other types of music that were not the forms of the generation prior. Mm -hmm. But it's the same desire. The desire is for greater community, but I, I, I don't, I don't see it. I think some people can get very ideological and uncharitable um, mm -hmm. on on both extremes. Um, but I think for many young people, they are are looking for Christ. They right. want to right. have an experience right. of Christ in worship. Right. And that there are there is legitimate diversity within the church, and I think that that there is something beautiful about that. That the Holy Spirit, as Pope Francis has pointed out, will bring unity to that diversity. Right. You know. You know. It's. I'm glad we're talking about this because it raises a profound challenge in my mind. Um. First of all, to avoid creating labels that are artificial and harmful and divisive. I think you're absolutely correct. I think there's also something instinctive, innate in these young people. Because it seems to me that the world in which we live now is becoming more utilitarian and therefore less beautiful, if I could put it that way that it's driven, it's busy, it's distracted, it's information-oriented, and therefore to, to contemplate a beautiful sunrise or to be able to just appreciate, like today in Connecticut, it's a beautiful day, right? It's the first hints of spring. I think we're in the 60s. Um, that moves the human person in a way different than you know, studying the faith intellectually or doing something with your hands in service. And it almost appears to me that we have over-intellectualized the faith, ironically. At the same time, a lot of people have never been given the opportunity to learn the faith. And we have set aside the power of the beautiful when it is profoundly evangelizing and in itself can be catechetical. It teaches the faith because it gives the intuition of faith that you don't learn out of a book. So I think these young people 
who are exploring what I will call these more traditional forms of worship do, in a sense, raise a question for everyone to ask, and that is, how is my heart engaged in the work of faith, in the work of worship, in the work of service, right? And, and, and does it lift me up to, like you said, Father Frank, beautifully, this encounter with the Lord Jesus who's a living person? Um, I, I'm going to give you one vignette very quickly. Forget the story. I took my mother to Broadway once, okay? That was the once and only time with me. That was it. She, she went with my sister. She didn't go with me anymore. Because my mother, God rest her soul, the saint that she was, could not get over how, forgive me for putting this way, how um, ordinary people dressed when they went to Broadway. Flip-flops, shorts, tank tops. My mother was horrified because... <laughs> And, and, and she, of course, she gave expression to it. And of course, she'd say it at Mass all the time, too. I mean, look at this one here. Ma, we're supposed to be here for Jesus. But look at that one here. Look, this, they should be dressing this way. And, you know, and I always thought, you know, it's her qualm. And it's... But now as I've thought about it, it, it really is a question that asks, certainly everybody's welcome. Of course they can. Of course the Lord welcomes us just the way we are. Of course he does. But isn't there a desire to be, for lack of a better word, um, to uplift the experience, to dress up, to make it beautiful, to, to almost a response to beauty. And uh, Broadway is one thing, to be honest, that, that I'm not really interested, but in church I am, because I think it's the working out of this question of beauty. Anyway, um, it's, it's fascinating that it seems to be growing among young people because I think there's this desire to rebalance uh, truth, beauty, and goodness. Would you agree with that, Frank? Uh, Father Frank, do you disagree with that? What's your view on that? I, I would agree that there is a, a desire for, uh, there is a desire for beauty. Now, beauty can come in a variety of, of forms. Um, in, cer in certain cultural groups, beauty looks one way, and another, it, 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 looks, it, it looks another. Um, but I, I think one Many times when somebody walks into a space, a, a, even a liturgical space, and says, you know, do they say, you know, ah, or uh, you know, what is it, what kind of, <laughs> of, of, of response is the first response that comes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When, mm -hmm. when uh, other venues are, but, it, but there's also a beauty you know, beauty that can be found in 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 simplicity mm -hmm. as well, and so there's a variety of ways in which in which I think beauty can be manifested, but it's also the attitude that people come with. What is the way in which we prepare ourselves? Do mm -hmm. we just go careening into into something, um, and that that can happen? It can happen because, you know, especially in family life when there's, you know, you got the small kids or, or so forth going on, that, that's understandable. But I think that there's a, in a consumer society, at times, the mass has become just another consumer thing that, that's done during the course, that might be done during the course of the week, mm -hmm. rather than something that is prepared for 
um, beforehand and, and, and is, is reflected on afterward. And that can be difficult. But we'll mm-hmm. do that with other things. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll prepare for, for other, other things that are in life that, that may well be weekly or daily. Um, but, but for some reason, it's like, okay, I'm just going to kind of careen into this experience. And I think with the young, many of the young people I know uh, and, and work with, they'll, they'll take the time to prepare or they'll, they'll take a, a few moments afterward just to be in Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. You might say, okay, well, they're, they're kind of anomalous, but I, I, I don't think so. I see more, I, I, I'm seeing more and more of it, not less. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, uh, forgive another story. Uh, you know, like yourself, I've given my fair share of talks, you know, in different venues. And in one venue in particular, it was one of the few times when not as an insignificant number of people got up and walked out as I was giving my remarks. And it was to pastoral musicians. <laughs> and the insight I said to them was, um, you know, we're all middle-aged here, give or take, more or less, right? Um, have you ever taken a look at the young people who are there for confirmation, none of whom are singing the songs you're picking? <laughs> Did you ever ask yourself the question, why are these young people not singing? <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it could very well be that nobody really asked them, <laughs> right? And, and, and they haven't had exposure to the beautiful traditions of the church, which can go from worship, uh, praise and worship music to chant, right? And everything else in between. And it's almost as if, you know, as someone said to me recently, you know, when you get to a certain age, um, you got to pass the mantle on for young adult ministry and youth ministry because you're so chronologically far away from it, right? That, you know, it's the new generation to take over. And I said to them, why don't we engage them and ask them? Well, obviously that they didn't like, that suggestion. It's, <laughs> it's so important to bring younger people to the table where, this, these, where decision-making happens. And mm-hmm. that's one way of, of engagement. Also to suspend judgment. Too often, what I, and I've said this to priests, religious, lay ecclesial ministers, um, people who do various types of pastoral work and so forth, to be careful to not judge in a quick way, but instead to take time to listen, to understand, and to see what, where, this, why, a person is raising this rather than just have every argument all set up against it because right. it doesn't match with one's particular view. Right, right, right. Confusing our criteria with God's. Absolutely. Yes. That, that's Absolutely. really important. That's a great point. Um, I need to jump in here, though, because we do need to take one more break. Uh, you're listening to Let Me Be Frank, um, or today, Let Me Be Franks, uh, on the Veritas Catholic Network. <laughs> Uh, Bishop Caggiano has been speaking with Father Frank Donio, the director of the Catholic Apostolate Center. We will be right back. Why do we need Catholic radio? Because not everybody's sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question and answer format show, Whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology, I myself, as a priest, am always learning. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. 
His Excellency has been speaking today with Father Frank Donio, the director of the Catholic Apostolate Center in Washington, D.C. Now as a part of the show, we're going to um, have Bishop Caggiano answer a listener question. And actually, Excellency, this question this week comes from Annabelle, who I actually know to be a sweet 11-year-old girl who may or may not also live in my house. Oh, okay. (laughs) Great. Okay. All right. All right. She wants to know, uh, have you ever met any popes and what were they like? Oh, yes, I have. Yes, I have. I met St. John Paul II three times, Pope Benedict once, and Pope Francis once. And uh, what were they like? You know, it's, it's also thrilling. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it's an amazing experience. But John Paul was more than just amazing. The first time I met him, I had this distinct impression. And I don't know how to describe this, but as if he was looking through me. Um, you know, people describe having had similar experiences with uh, Mother Teresa when she was alive and others. Um, it, uh, to think you're standing in the presence of the successor of Peter, an unbroken line of leadership from the Lord himself, in the beauty of the Vatican, which, despite all our faults and failings, speaks of the beauty of our faith and the beauty of what awaits us in heaven, um, is amazing. I don't know if I ever told you this story. Allow me just 30 seconds. Did I tell you the story about Brooklyn and John Paul? No, Excellency. Well, there I was. So there I was. All right. First encounter with this man who was going to be a saint. And, and Cardinal Jeevich was his secretary at the time, right next to him. And there was 30 of us. We had celebrated mass with him. And then we're being received to receive the rosary beads. And Jeevich, Cardinal Jeevich, introduces us to the Pope. And... They come to me, so right there, the Pope's right in front of me. And Jeeves whispers, and he says, oh, he said, Father Frank from Brooklyn. And then he pauses, he goes, in the United States? And I just couldn't help myself. I said, Holy Father, there's only one Brooklyn. (laughs) And he just looked at me, he goes, God bless. And he moved on to the next person. (laughs) And I thought, I'd be assigned to Siberia. But it just, it just came, and not that I was being disrespectful, I just, you know, but of course there's only one Brooklyn. I mean, well, how many Brooklyns would there be? <laughs> I mean, and, and I thought, oh my gosh, I just, I just said that to the Pope. <laughs> but he smiled. He smiled. So, yes, so tell, yeah, they were great experiences. Awesome. <laughs> I've heard that uh, Pope John Paul II had a great sense of humor, so that's fantastic. Yes, he did. So if you have questions uh, and you're listening for Bishop Frank, send them in. You can email questions at veritascatholic.com or you can uh, send them in to us via social media. Bishop Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Veritas Catholic Network, Network is there too. And big thanks today to Father Frank Donio for joining us on this week's episode. Father Frank, thank, thank you, you for, for the taking the time sharing your experience and your insights. And um, I'm, I'm very grateful. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Bishop. It was a, a distinct pleasure, and I, I really have enjoyed your podcast. And it's uh, just a, 
wonderful to be a, a part of it today. Great. And you can learn more about the Catholic Apostolate Center at www.catholicapostolatecenter.org. They're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and a few other platforms. Uh, right, Father Frank? Yes, indeed. Awesome. And we have all sorts of resources. Awesome. Uh, Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. May the Lord in his gracious mercy send the Holy Spirit upon you to bless your days, to continue to protect you in his love, and bring you one day unto the glory of eternal life. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you now and forever. Amen. Amen. Uh, Amen. My friend, Holy Week is approaching. Next week, we have to start getting ourselves ready for the, for the, for the Easter mysteries. Yes, we will do that, Excellency. We have much to talk about. Thank you.